Father, we thank you that someone has spoken the gospel to us who believe. Someone led us to the truth. Someone led us to Jesus Christ. Someone spoke to us about the resurrection. Someone told us about the hope of the resurrection life for us. Would you make us bold personally and corporately so that others would also come to know Christ as Savior? Oh, Father, these are, these are rich truths about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are rich truths about what the Spirit of God does in us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And might you now, as we come back again to Romans chapter 8, might you give us satisfaction in Christ as the Spirit points us to Him. And might we be changed by the Spirit's work in us, changed even in this hour of worship. We pray in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen. A couple of years ago, a Great Dane was brought into the Dove Lewis Emergency Animal Hospital in Portland, Oregon, because the dog had been retching and vomiting all through the day. The, the doctors examined the dog with a radial, uh, an abdominal radiograph and found, quote, a severely distended stomach and a large quantity of foreign material. And so they took the dog back to surgery and the surgeons opened up, the, opened up the dog and opened up the stomach and sure enough, there was foreign material in the dog's stomach and they removed a sock. And then they removed another sock and another sock and another sock and another sock. In fact... They removed 43 and a half socks. Apparently, the dog and the washing machine got together to abscond with all of the socks in the household. Of course, this begs the question, on how much footwear can Fido feast before Fido's found a fatality? More seriously, it is worth noting that what one consumes can kill. And for humanity, what is lurking inside of us, our fleshly desires and our fleshly longings that are the manifestation of our Adamic nature, that sin nature that we inherited from Adam, is deadly. It can kill us and it will kill us unless something changes. And oh, friends, something has changed. By the grace of God, the Holy Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ. We saw that in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. He says, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You were under sin. You were under death. And friend, you have been set free by the Spirit of God so that, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation has been removed. You're not under bondage to sin. You're not under the penalty of sin any longer. Previously, 
We only knew bondage to sin, and now we know freedom from sin. Before, we only knew the power of the flesh and the tyranny of the flesh and the compulsion of the flesh, and now we know the power of the work of God in our lives to change us and transform us. In fact, Paul tells us in verses 5 through 8 of Romans chapter 8 of what changed when we were moved from darkness to light. What, what was transformed when we were moved out of Adam and into Christ? What was, moved, what was changed when we were moved from flesh to spirit? He says we're given a new mindset and we're given a new position and we're given a new ability and we're given a new desire. And, and he points to all these things, but, but lurking underneath that might be the question, how did that happen? How is it that, that God can work this in our lives so that we are so radically changed and transformed? That's the question that Paul answers in verses 9 through 11 of Romans chapter 8. He tells us how this transformation has taken place. And it was through the singular gift of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. Again, just by way of reminder as we come to this section, that the theme of this section is that when the Spirit of God saves someone, He is entirely changed from the inside out. When the, when the Spirit of God comes to reside in someone, He changes that person externally so that, so that the person's conduct changes, but not just that His external actions change, but that He has changed inside, that He has changed internally. In these verses, Paul reveals four realities about the life of the Spirit in the believer. Four, four aspects of the believer's life that is changed by the Spirit of God. Let's look at these one at a time, beginning in verse 9. Let me read the section and then we'll look at it together. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. When the Spirit of God saves someone, my friend, He is entirely changed from the inside out. How is it that the Spirit of God does that? The first reality that, that uh, Paul tells us is that if you are in Christ, you are not in the flesh. If you are in Christ, you are not in the flesh. Notice how he begins verse 9. He says, however, and he is, he is transitioning between verses 5 to 8 into a new thought. In verses 5 to 8, he had reminded us of the power of the flesh, the compulsion of the flesh, the leading of the flesh, the bondage of the flesh. And now he says, that is what you were, however. The believer's state now is, is something different than the unbeliever's state in the flesh. And friend, it could not be more different You are not, he says, in the flesh. 
Something has dramatically changed. In fact, he not only says, however, you are not in the flesh, but, but he emphasizes the pronoun you. So he actually doubles it. So we might actually translate it. However, you, you are not in the flesh. It's as if Paul is saying to the Roman believers, I, I have heard of your testimony. I have, I've seen of your testimony. I've experienced the grace of God being flowed through your lives and out of your lives. And you are not in the flesh. It's a reminder that, that they have been changed. Their lives have been dramatically transformed so they are no longer what they were previously. Their lives have given testimony to the transformation that comes through Jesus Christ, and that is evident to Paul that, that God has transformed them. Notice also that Paul says, you are not. And there he takes a negative and combines it with a, a present tense verb. So he says, you are not in the flesh. So you are not ever in the flesh again. Your, your state is not in the flesh, but you have been removed out of the flesh. And, and the negative with that present tense is to say, you are not in that condition and you can never go back into that condition again. You have been permanently removed from the context of the flesh. This is Paul's affirmation that once they are in the Spirit, it is impossible to be under the flesh again. They are no longer, to borrow his terminology from 7.14, sold under sin. That was what they were. They were in bondage to sin, but now they are, they are no longer under sin. The flesh no longer determines the direction of their lives. And all of these realities have combined to make a profound change and transformation in the lives of the Roman Christians. When I was in seminary, Regine and I lived in campus housing across the street from, from the campus and from the academic buildings. And one, uh, one day in May of 1989, early May 1989, I remember distinctly, I'll probably never forget this day, I remember walking out of one of those buildings and I remember walking down the sidewalk. It was a bright, sunny day, very comfortable day. And I walked down that sidewalk and I began to cross across the street. And as I was crossing the street, the thought went through my mind, I will never, ever take another exam. Now, I have had other exams. I have had lots of tests, lots of trials, but I have never, ever had to take another exam for that institution, for that degree. I have a diploma somewhere in my office. It's buried, actually. I don't even know where it is at the moment. But they can never come back and say, Terry, um, we'd like to reconsider that diploma we gave you. And we know that we said no more exams. But um, almost 30 years later, we're starting to reconsider this thing and we think you should take another exam. Can't do it. I've been transferred out of the domain of student to, to the domain of graduate, never to go back again. And my brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, that is your position. 
There's no institution. There's no being. There's, there's no aspect in the Godhead by which once you have been transferred out of the flesh and into Christ by which you can be compelled to go back into the flesh again. That domain, that control, that authority is removed from you and you are no longer there. I appreciate what Ray Ortland Jr. has written in his helpful book, Supernatural Living for Natural People. He says this, all that Paul has said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in verses 1 to 8 is yours. You can personalize the gospel for yourself. You can say, the Holy Spirit not only lives in Christians, He lives in this Christian. Oh friend, if you are not in the flesh You are not in the flesh if you are in the Spirit. If you have Jesus Christ, you are not in the flesh. There's a second reality that Paul gives us in verse 9, and that is, if you are in Christ, then the Spirit is in you. If you are in Christ, the Spirit is in you. Notice the middle of verse 9, he says, you are not in the flesh, but... In the Spirit. In fact, the the contrastive but that he uses here is the strongest kind of contrastive he can use. It is as if Paul is saying, not this, but that. And he wants them to grasp the magnitude of change that salvation has brought. And then notice what he says. You're not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. And then notice the next little word. He says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And you see that little word, if, and you think, oh, there it goes. Well, I hope I'm in. I hope I don't lose the Spirit. I hope I'm in Jesus. I think I am. I hope I don't, I hope if I'm in Jesus that the Spirit won't go away. That's not what he's saying. It is a conditional sentence, if then, if this is true, then that is true. But there are all kinds of different conditional sentences in the Greek language. And this is the kind of conditional sentence that that affirms the reality of the presupposition. And so we, we would better give the sense of it, not by saying if, like, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but we give the better sense of saying since or when. So we might say, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. When you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, it's not a matter of if then, if I will go back to the flesh, if the flesh will rule me again. My friend, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you are in Him, and He is in you, and that cannot change. In fact, notice that the Apostle Paul says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, that word dwell is, is, is the word that means to, to have a household or to, to, to live in a particular place. And, and again, it's a present tense, so it means this is something that is ongoing. It's not something that ceases, but it's something that is perpetual and ongoing. So one commentator has rightly, has rightly noted, the Spirit is not an occasional visitor 
He takes up residence in God's people. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, I'll go for a while and then I'm going to leave. No, friend, if He's in you, He is in you. That's His house. The address cannot change. That is His permanent home. And notice the contrast that is given here. The believer is not in the flesh, but he is in the Spirit. He has been identified with the Spirit of God. But notice notice something else. He says, verse 9, but he is in the Spirit and the Spirit dwells in you. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit is in you and you are in the Spirit. So there's a cohabitation, if you will. So that we're in Him and He is in us. It's, it's Paul's way of saying this is an unbreakable, unchangeable bond. This is your position. This is your new reality. We can no longer be in the flesh because of what is in us and because of in whom we are. And the indwelling, that one writer has said, indwelling sin marks the unbeliever. And the indwelling spirit marks the believer. And that is unchangeable. Now, that does not mean that the believer is never going to sin. We we saw that in Romans chapter 7, right? Verses 14 to 25. We saw that believers sin again. We we see that in Galatians chapter 5, this, this wrestling with the flesh. Some of you saw that this morning, the wrestling with the flesh. Didn't you? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But some of you saw it this morning. Some of you saw it yesterday. This pull towards remaining sin that is in us. And we still have that. We, we, we still will sin. But friend, our, our identity, our location, that which compels us and powers us is the Spirit of God and not the flesh. I, I like what one commentator has said. However much we may need to grow in our relationship to the Spirit, however much we may be graciously given fresh and invigorating experiences of God's Spirit. So both continuums. I need Him a lot or I've seen much manifestation in in my life already. From the moment of conversion on, the Holy Spirit is a settled resident within. Oh, friend... If you're in Christ, then the Spirit is in you. This is what theologians call the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I want to take just a few minutes to consider a few questions that relate to the indwelling of the Spirit. First question, what does it mean to be indwelt by the Spirit? What does it mean when we're talking about the indwelling of the Spirit? What does Paul mean by that? Notice he says, um, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells or lives in you. What, what does that preposition in mean? And, that, and a lot of times it's taken to be a spatial relationship, that, that the Spirit is somehow inside my body, kind of controlling. You know, so I'm, I'm just kind of the skin on the outside of the Spirit, if you will. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about a, a spatial relationship. And, and we know that in part because we have to remember that the Spirit is, I hate to be Captain Obvious here, but the Spirit is a 
spirit. And prior to the incarnation, in fact, no member of the Trinity had a physical body. Now, Christ assumed a physical body, but, but the Father and the Son both remain spirit. And so, so the spirit to be in us is not talking about that he physically comes and lives in our bodies and through our bodies. And we, we know that in part even just by jumping down and, and looking at the next verse. Notice, notice verse 10. If Christ is in you. Now Christ has a physical body and is Christ's physical body inside my body? No. It, he's talking about relationship, isn't he? He's talking about authority. In fact, he not only says in this verse that Christ is in you, but, but many times in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers, and Paul in particular, talks about us being in Christ. So, uh, chapter 6, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus... Now, is he saying that our physical body is inside Jesus' physical body? No. He's talking about identification. Chapter 6, verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So our life is in the person of Jesus Christ through the relationship we have with Christ. He said the same thing in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, identified with Him. He'll talk in chapter 12, verse 5, about, about a corporate identity that we have in Christ Jesus. So he's not talking about a spatial relationship. He's talking about a, a spiritual relationship. But it, we're also helped by understanding that that little word, verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, that little word in, is often in the New Testament translated as either by or with. And so we can give it that sense here. You are not in the flesh, but with the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells with you, stays with you. And, and so what Paul is talking about here is not the location of the Spirit, but he's talking about the presence of the Spirit. He's talking about the power of the Spirit. He's talking about how the Spirit relates to us, and that is that He relates to us through authority and control. There's another question that we might ask. What does it mean to be indwelt by the Spirit? How about this question? What are the marks of the indwelling of the Spirit? So what, what are the indicators of the indwelling of the Spirit? And how do we know the Spirit of God dwells in us? Well, we know that the Spirit of God has come because of the words of Jesus. For instance, in John chapter 14, it says in verse 16, uh, Jesus on the night in which he was crucified, or excuse me, the night in which he was tried before the crucifixion, Thursday night, he says to the disciples in the upper room, uh, John fourteen sixteen, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So can Jesus ask something from God that God won't give him? No. Everything that Jesus asks... From the Father, the Father will grant. Why? Because He is one with the Father. Jesus can't have a separate will from the Father. So if Jesus says, this is what I will and this is what I desire, then that's the same will that the Father has and the Father will grant it. So Jesus is making a promise. I will give you another helper. 
So we know that the Spirit of God comes because it's the promise of Jesus Christ. And, and notice the extent of that promise, again, John 14, 16, that He may be with you forever. So that this is an eternal, ongoing, unchanging gift. This is not a gift that, that kind of comes and goes. This is a gift that is granted perpetually and stays. This is not a gift that goes away. So, so David in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba, and he's praying a prayer of repentance, and he says in Psalm 51 verse 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now in the Old Testament that, that was a valid prayer because the Holy Spirit didn't inhabit people, didn't, didn't live with people in the way he does after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit could, in a sense, come and go. And David's saying, please don't go. I need you. But when Jesus says that He may be with you forever, it is to say He will never leave you. He will always be with you. Not only that, but the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, when it is that we receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, he says in chapter 1, verse 13, in Him, speaking about Jesus Christ, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you heard the gospel. Someone proclaimed the gospel to you. You heard it. You responded to it, having also believed. Then he says, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you believed and then you were sealed. So you believed and then the Holy Spirit was granted to you. He says in verse 14, the gift of that Spirit is a pledge of our inheritance. It's, it's the down payment of the inheritance. It's, it's the partial payment of all of the fullness of the salvation that we will receive from Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. And the thing to note in Ephesians 1 is that it happens immediately after belief. So if you believe then you receive the Holy Spirit. And again, it is a, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a reminder of what's coming. He says in, in similarly in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit puts His stamp of approval on you and says, I'm keeping you until the day of redemption. Now, the redemption, the redemption is sure in that Christ has accomplished everything. We just haven't experienced all the fullness of it yet. But that day of redemption, when we experience the fullness of it is coming, and you have the Spirit as an assurance of what you will receive in the future. And that Spirit is also given to all believers. It's not just given selectively to a few believers, but it is given to all believers. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you. But it's not just you individually, but the the word in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is the word you is, is the word y'all. All y'all. It's everyone. That, that is true, right? I mean, there's, there's like you, that's like, that's like Regine or Jack, that's you. And then there, there's y'all, that's like a few of you. And then there's all y'all. That's like everybody, right? Isn't that the way that works? It's the way I use it. That's what Paul's saying here. It's all y'all. Everyone. So there's a sense in which 
The Spirit of God not only inhabits us individually, but He inhabits us corporately as one body of Christ. What are the marks of the Spirit of God? He has been given to us as a promise by Jesus Christ. He has given to us eternally, and He has given to each of us at the point of salvation. What's the benefit of having a Spirit? What, is, what does the Spirit do? What's, what does the Spirit come to do when He dwells in us? Well, let me just take a couple of minutes and, and unfold for you a few things that He does for us. He is, he is in us to produce even our very coming to life. So, so Titus chapter 3 Verse 5 says He regenerates us in that He saved us, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, so it wasn't my self-righteousness that accomplished is my salvation, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. How do I get new life? How do I come to life and how do I come to know new life? And he says, Titus chapter 3, it is only through the Holy Spirit. He's the regenerating influence in the life of the believer. But not only does he bring us to life, but he sustains us in life and he sanctifies us. So back to Romans chapter 8, verse 4, we saw this last Sunday, so the, or two weeks ago. So that the requirement of the law, he says, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We live, we walk according to the power of the Spirit. And what does the power of the Spirit enable us to do? He says, the Spirit enables us to walk in and fulfill the requirement of the law. We don't fulfill it perfectly. We don't fulfill it for salvation. We don't say, well, I've done all these things, and on the basis of my obedience to the law, God now saves me. No. Justification is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But having been saved and having the Holy Spirit living in us and working through us now, there are some requirements of the law, some, some duties and obligations of the law. Now, because I'm not empowered by the flesh, I can obey. That's the Spirit of God working in us and working through us. He is sanctifying us. He'll say in Galatians chapter 5 that He is producing His fruit in us and through us as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He works that through us. John chapter 16, He not only produces His fruit, but He convicts us regarding sin and judgment. He, he convicts us of our sin. He shows us that if we don't repent, that the judgment will come. And He leads us to the righteousness that can be found only in Jesus Christ. He produces His gifts in us for the benefit of the church. We'll see that in Romans chapter 12. He fills us and guides us through His Word. So, um, Ephesians, again, chapter 4, or, uh, excuse me, chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says in verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, when he uses the word filled, he's talking about something different than indwelling. Indwelling is permanent. But filling is intermittent, occasional, in the life of a believer that's walking with Christ, you could, you could even say perpetual or typical. But it's not always. And in fact, we know it's not always because he says, be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say be indwelled with the Spirit. He says, you are indwelt by the Spirit. 
But he says, be filled with him as in you might be filled and you might not be filled. And he says, one of the manifestations of being filled by the Spirit, verse 19, is that you'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart towards the Lord. How is it that we are filled, or to use a parallel term, controlled by the Holy Spirit, led by, directed by, in submission to the Holy Spirit? How do, how do we get to that place where we're increasingly being filled by the Holy Spirit, compelled by, pushed along by, the working of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. Now, Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18 and 19 are the same in structure. So there's a controlling verb and then there's a manifestation of that controlling verb. And... And the thing that's produced by that verb is teaching, admonishing with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And he says in Ephesians, that's to be filled by the Spirit. And he says in Colossians, it is to, to let the Word of Christ rule and let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. How does the Holy Spirit fill us with Himself and how do we submit to the Holy Spirit? By submitting to His Word and following His Word. Letting the Word dwell in us richly, compellingly. The Holy Spirit fills us, guides us, directs us by His Word. The Holy Spirit likewise also points us to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is not about Himself. The Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit in Scripture never points to Himself. So Paul, excuse me, John says in 1 John chapter 4, By this you know the Spirit of God. How do you know that the Spirit of God is functioning and acting in a church or in an individual? John says every spirit, that is every person, every individual, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh That person, he says, is from God. How do you know the Spirit of God? Because the people who are pointed to Jesus Christ are the ones who have the Spirit in them pushing them to Christ. Christ is, excuse me, the Spirit is consumed with Jesus Christ. The Spirit doesn't come to exalt Himself. The Spirit comes to exalt Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is the very thing that Jesus Christ Himself promised when He said He was going to be giving the Holy Spirit. He says in John chapter 16, verse 13, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. The Spirit doesn't say whatever he wants. The Spirit can only say what's in accordance with the, with, with the entire Godhead. He doesn't speak on his own initiative, but he speaks whatever he hears, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me. For he will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. So the Spirit of God comes. The Spirit of God resides within us to point us to Christ so that we are consumed with Christ. 
so that we can live for Christ. We might say it this way. The Spirit provides every single thing we need to live the Christian life. He is as resourceful and beneficial to us as if we had Christ walking beside us at every moment of every day. And friend, if you are in Christ and the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, that is exactly what you have. You have the Spirit of God. You have Christ walking with you through every decision, every moment, every temptation to lead you and guide you so that you are pointed to Christ living like Christ. This is why Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 16 that it was to to their advantage if he would leave so that when he leaves, he can send the Spirit of God to be with them always. One last question to ask. What does it mean to not have the Spirit? Notice the end of the verse. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. And Paul uses um, that verb um, does in parallel to the verb dwells in the previous phrase. So, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're in Him. If the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, you're not in Him. You have no hope. You have, you have no ability to save yourself or to walk according to Christ's principles and Christ's truth. Paul is being absolutely unequivocal. If the Spirit is not in someone, then that one does not belong to the Spirit. Period. If there is no evidence of the power of the Spirit, if there is no evidence of the Spirit's work, then that person can have no confidence that he is in Christ. Again, Ray Ortland Jr. says this, Our whole existence used to be limited to the flesh, what we could achieve out of our own native moral capacities. All that we had was our good intentions. That is life in the flesh. It may be religious, it may be upright, it may be outwardly Christian, but it is rotten within and it cannot last. Christians without the Holy Spirit do not exist. And all who do have the Spirit are Christians and stand to inherit all the renewal that God can impart to a rotted sinner. Oh, praise God. If you're in Christ... You have everything you need from the Spirit. Oh, but friend, if you're not in Christ, you have nothing of the Spirit, and you're under God's condemnation. And that leads me to have to ask the question, is there evidence of the Spirit within you this morning? Are you the kind of person that is controlled by the flesh? And by that I mean, are you the kind of person that is controlled either by self-indulgent libertinism where you just let the flesh go and you engage in every kind of sin 
without care and concern about God? Or are you the kind of fleshly person that's moralistic and says, I'm going to achieve righteousness on my own and I don't need Jesus Christ because I'm good enough. And friend, if you're in either of those camps, then the Spirit of God is not dwelling in you. Are you controlled by the Spirit of God? Are you in submission to Him and and pursuing Christ by reliance on Him? Or or are you leaning on yourself? And friend, if you are leaning on yourself and if you're leaning on the flesh, you have no hope save one. Oh, but that hope is glorious. That hope is Jesus Christ. That hope is to repent of your sin, to turn away from your sin, to turn in faith and trust of Jesus Christ and His work and His offering and His provision for sin. Notice chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 8 verse 2. He says, we've been set free from the spirit of life. And the law could not set us free, verse 3, but God can by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and for our sin problem, He condemns sin in the flesh. Oh, friend, if you trust in Jesus Christ and say, I can't save myself, but I trust Him to save me and I trust that He is sufficient to be the delight of my life to follow after Him, oh, friend, He will save you. That is your only hope. Are you in the Spirit or are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, you are not in the flesh. If you are in Christ, the Spirit is in you. There's a third principle that the Apostle gives us that's in verse 10. If the Spirit is in you, you are being made alive. Notice he says in verse 10, Now Christ is in you. And and he uses, he changes here, right? Because he says in verse 9, The Spirit of God is in you. And then he says in verse 9 also, the Spirit of Christ is in you. So so He is the Spirit that comes from the Father and He is also the Spirit that comes from Christ. But not only that, verse 10, He's not only coming from Christ, but if He is in you, it is to say that Christ is in you. Now He's not saying that the Spirit of God and Christ are the same, but He is saying that they are part of one triune Godhead. So distinct in personality, distinguishable, separate, and yet unified and inseparable. They're not the same being, but in everything they do, they function cohesively and in unity. Oh, friends, this is, this is such an encouragement because if, if you struggle with loneliness, if you, if you struggle with, with being alone and, and, and feeling like, like all is lost and yet there's no friends and there's no family and some of you live there and, and maybe you're not a, a, a part of, of the body of Christ in such a way that you have dynamic friendships and relationships. Friend, you have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ and Christ Himself in you and with you. And again, we have not been left behind. We have not been forgotten. If we are in Christ, then we are in Him and He is in us perpetually and forever. Now notice what else he says. If Christ is in you, and then he has kind of a a parenthetical thought because his mind goes, wait, 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 Paul. The reality is we still live in this fleshly body, right? This body of skin and bones. 
And this body that is decaying and falling apart. So he says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. In other words, you still have this physical body that because of the influence of sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. If you still are having this physical body, your body still subject to death. Even so, he says, even while you have a body that is dying, he says, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, now I use the New American Standard translation. If you're following along in that, it says, yet the spirit, lowercase s, is alive because of righteousness. And, and what the translators have done, they tried to translate that word spirit to denote the spirit that is within a man. So our bodies are dead, but the inner man is still alive. And, and they're trying to give the sense that, that, that this, this is our hope, that even when our bodies are dying, we, we can still be alive. And, and that's a perfectly valid translation. Except, and, and the problem is Greek doesn't have uppercase and lowercase, so we're kind of guessing. What is this a capital? They don't use pronouns and proper nouns the way we do. Is it, should this be capitalized or should this be lowercase? This, the, the, the more complete, accurate translation is not, yet the spirit is alive, but the spirit is life. And my sense is that Paul is not pointing to a life in us, but he is pointing to the giver of life in the Holy Spirit. My hope is not that I can somehow make life in myself, because I'm not life in myself. I have no ability to make alive. But if I have the Spirit of God in me, And the Spirit of God, who is life, eternal. And if the Spirit of God, who is life, eternal, can take the righteousness and the justifying work of Jesus Christ and apply it to my life, now I'm alive. And the Apostle Paul is is pointing us again to a work of the Spirit of God to Bring us to life now. Our bodies are dead. But, but He's making us alive even now. It is a reminder of what Paul will say in Colossians chapter 3. Christ is our life. We may, we may be dying and we may have to go through death, but that does not mean that we are dead. The Spirit of God is alive and He has imparted the life of Christ to us so that we might live even now. He is with us to give us everything we need in every circumstance, every trial, and every temptation. If the Spirit is in you, you are being made alive. And lastly, fourth reality about the Spirit and His indwelling work If the Spirit is in you, you will be made alive. Some of you may have been given a promise on one occasion and you think, how is that going to happen? There is no way that that can happen. It's a figment of someone's imagination. 
No one can make the Texas Rangers go to the World Series this year or any other year. It's done. Who can make that promise? And friends, some of you think about salvation in the same way. How can, how can the Spirit of God do this in me? How can the Spirit of God bring me to life because of verse 11? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's fascinating what's going on in this verse. Notice he says at the beginning, who it is that raises Jesus from the dead. He doesn't specify by name, but he says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. So he's not saying the Spirit Himself raised Christ, but it is Him who raised Christ. Who is it that raised Christ? It was God the Father who raised Christ. We saw this back in chapter 6, verse 4. He says, We have been buried with Him with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It was the glory of the Father. It was the working of the Father that brought Jesus Christ to life. And we find this principle that the Father brings the Son to life through the resurrection all through the New Testament. Uh, Consider just one other passage, uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, Peter says, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. It was the God the triune God, the Father in the Godhead that brought Jesus Christ to life. But the means by which He brought Him to life, in verse 11, is through the Spirit. And that Spirit, He says, gave life to Christ, and now at the end of verse 11 also will give life through His Spirit to our mortal bodies. So the Spirit is the agent that the Father uses to produce life. And then not only that, we find throughout the New Testament all kinds of sayings about Jesus Christ being brought to life. But Jesus Himself says in John chapter 10, He says verse 18, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to raise it up again. So Christ Himself says inherent within Him, is an ability to come back to life. What do we have? We have the triune Godhead producing the resurrection of Christ. And Paul's point is, if the triune Godhead can produce the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if He can do the greater, then He can do the lesser by giving you resurrection of life as well. If He can bring to life the one who has had the infinite and eternal wrath of God poured out on him, if he can bring that one to life, then, friend, he can bring you to life as well. And that's his point. He who dwells in you, this Spirit, will give life to your mortal bodies. And we long for that, don't we? 18, or excuse me, uh, chapter 8, verse 23 says, we... We have a longing. We're groaning within ourselves, waiting 
for the redemption of our body. And then he says in verse 30 that he will glorify us. He will bring us to life. We, we will have this um, renewed body. That's the point that he's also making in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've sown a mortal body and it'll be raised an incorruptible, eternal, imperishable body. Well, friend, the Spirit is superintending our spiritual life and our spiritual progress from start to finish. It is a guaranteed life, not because of what we have done, but because of what the Spirit of God has done, is doing, and will do to apply the blood of Christ to us. Michael Reeves, in his outstanding book, Delighting in the Trinity, reminds us that the first statement about the Holy Spirit is in the Nicene Creed is that He is the Lord, the giver of life. And then Reeves comments this way, In the beginning it was the Spirit who, like a mother dove, first vitalized creation and breathed life into it. Likewise, it is the Spirit who gives new life, first to Jesus in the tomb and then to us. Now, just to have said that is to have said something profound, that we do not have life in ourselves. We depend entirely on the Spirit. And that is how we were created to be. And if that is how we were created to be, how much more is that true of us now because of our sin in Adam? Oh, my brothers and sisters, all that we need for life we have in the Spirit of God who dwells in you who believe. Oh, our Father, we thank you for this amazing truth. Christ our Savior, we have read about and prayed about and given thanks for the gospel through Jesus Christ this morning. And and Father, now we thank you not only for that gospel, but for the working of that gospel through the Spirit of God who resides within us who believe. Oh, Father, thank you for this indwelling Spirit who works in us to accomplish His purposes. Would you, would you take these glorious truths and transform us by them that this day and this week we might walk in closer fellowship with Him, submission to Him, so we look like the one to whom He is pointing, Jesus Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.